0: How will AI shape society and how will society shape AI? AI for Society Dialogues explores the work of researchers from the University of Alberta, a global leader in artificial intelligence research. This season, AI for Society partners with Precision Health to learn more about the ways in which AI technologies are shaping the future of healthcare and the exciting advances being made in digital health. As advances are made in artificial intelligence, questions are being raised about how we should relate to AI, especially when it's embodied intelligence. In other words, how will we relate to robots? Dr. Adriana Rios Rincon is a researcher who uses robots in her work with children, along with other technologies. Dr. Rios Rincon is an assistant professor, Department of Occupational Therapy, Faculty of Rehabilitation Medicine at the University of Alberta. Her work is centered on understanding a range of questions related to how technology supports the health and wellness of individuals with disabilities through engagement in play, and she joins me today on AI for Society
1: Dialogues. Dr. Ria Strinkan, welcome to the podcast. Well, uh, thank you so much, Katrina. I'm so happy to be part of this uh, series of uh, podcasts.
0: Fantastic. Well, since this podcast is part of the AI for Society signature research area in partnership with Precision Health, I'm asking all of our guests, what does artificial intelligence mean to you in the context of healthcare?
1: Well, um, artificial intelligence features more prominently in the healthcare services and interventions. I understand that artificial intelligence is based on data, uh, which is the collection of samples of a phenomenon. Uh, Burkov, in 2019, in the 100-page machine learning book, that is a very good book and very easy to understand, states uh, that the sources of data using artificial intelligence can be based in nature or created by humans. Um, so examples of data produced by humans are databases that contain historical information about processes or established practices. Um, This historical information is stored somewhere and can be used to classify things and make decisions of or decisions about the future. I think that particularly in healthcare, artificial intelligence has a great potential to help healthcare practitioners interpret data, especially big amounts of data. Artificial intelligence can also reduce hours or to the laborious data recording and can provide feedback to interventions in real time and with a high and with a high accuracy, which is beneficial to provide high-quality healthcare services. I work in the area of rehabilitation, and I think that artificial intelligence has great potential for being used to help therapists in different ways for example in identifying patterns of behaviors in our clients in my current research i am exploring the use of artificial intelligence to classify levels of engagement in older adults based on data from their play performance or behaviors while they play mobile games my master's student this is, for example, aims to use artificial intelligence, especially supervised machine learning, to distinguish dementia based on older adults' engagement-related behaviors while playing a mobile game. This project could be as a, a useful option to help rehabilitation professionals to distinguish clients who are experiencing dementia based on their engagement-related behaviors. While performing leisure activities. So, summarizing, artificial intelligence can potentially help rehabilitation professionals detect early stages of cognitive decline that precedes dementia in older adults. Uh, using alternative means such as playing video games may be more interesting or engaging for older adults than the application of standardized screening tools that can be used for monitoring cognitive status in a playful way. So these are just some examples of these uses.
0: So your research focuses a lot on assistive technologies and occupational therapy. You've done a lot of work uh, looking at play in both children and elderly adults. Why is play such an important part of life in general?
1: Play is crucial part of life. Uh, that is common associated with freedom, pleasure, and enjoyment. Play is a means f- to fortify a community's identity. It is related to human beings' creative expressions. It is a way to adapt and develop, and it makes life enjoyable and fun. So play is an activity that is intrinsically motivated. So that means that you play just because you want to play, right? And it's chosen by the player because it generates pleasure and enjoyment. So uh, the contemporary literature states that play and leisure are resources for transcending negative life experiences and for contributing to the capacity to cope with stress, to increase uh, self-concept and self-esteem, and to enhance in social competence throughout a one's life. So, Engaging in play and meaningful leisure activities at any age has enormous benefits from well being. I just want to mention that during the COVID 19 pandemic, we all have felt a sort of deprivation from play related activities. All these activities that are not related to survival or work, but related to have fun and engage in social connection just because we want to. These activities have been limited to, uh, by the necessary public health measures to control the spread of the virus, right? So we all have had the opportunity to value play because uh, we um, have felt limited the opportunities to engage in uh, play-related activities. So for children, play has a clear role in uh, children's development. That's very important that children have opportunities to engage in free play for their development.
0: Yeah, and I think you're right. I think we're all feeling the limitations that um, this pandemic has brought on and um, and maybe suffering some of the consequences of not being able to play in in the way that we have um, before. And and maybe just before we dive into your research, um, if I could ask you, how do you like to play when you're not working? What do you do for fun?
1: Well, yes, I I love dancing. So I dance for fun and for fitness. Uh, This is an activity that I really enjoy. Uh, I am from Colombia originally, and uh, in Colombia, music and dancing are important elements of culture. So, as a Colombian, I dance not only while you know I am in a party, but also when I'm cooking or cleaning. Uh, I also uh, like to be in contact with nature. So I take any chance to uh, do easy <laughs> hiking and in the nature. And also I love traveling. Uh, you know, this has been limited by the pandemic.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I'm I'm a big fan of dancing too. And, and okay. sometimes I, I do a little celebratory dance after I finished a podcast, a successful interview. So, so I we can do, do that little, together. We can do that together, we'll do that. <laughs> Um, Alright, let's, uh, let's talk about your research now. You, you, you've done a fantastic setup of a, a wide range of things and some of uh, these things that you're looking at and how AI relates to it. But just to kind of maybe get back to basics a bit for our audience. Um, so we understand that you work in this area of assistive technologies. If you could maybe explain what does that actually mean, assistive technologies, and how, that, how does that intersect with the work that you're doing?
1: Yes, uh, yeah. Let's start talking about what uh, we call assistive technologies. So uh, recently, the World uh, Health Organization um, has uh, generated a series of publications uh, to clarify the terms, of, the term of assistive technology. So first thing uh, that we need to know is that assistive technology systems belong to health technology and comprise the application of knowledge, skills, procedures, and policies for the provision of assessment for and use of assistive products. In general, an assistive uh, product is any product, including devices, equipment, instruments, software, either specially designed and produced or generally available, Uh, whose principal purpose is to maintain or improve an individual's functioning and independence and uh, thereby promote their well-being. So I'm just reading a definition from uh, Kasnavis and and colleagues who published this definition in 2015. But in uh, simpler words, uh, Mary Pat Radava, while was the director of IBM National Support Center for People with Disabilities, She said, and I love this quote, for most people, technology makes things easier. For people with disabilities, technology makes things possible. That's a nice way to describe and explain uh, assistive technologies. We are familiar with uh, different assistive technologies, such as wheelchairs or uh, hearing aids, right? These are uh, more familiar or more uh, common. But in 2016, the World Health Organization added some technologies that usually we don't understand as assistive technologies, and they labeled uh, these technologies as assistive technologies. For example, um, fault detectors, simplified mobile phones, GPAs, devices, personal digital assistance, and video communication devices. So the inclusion of these new technologies that are used by everyone, right, has the potential to improve access to everyday digital technologies to enhance independence and autonomy in people with disabilities.
0: Wow. That, and that's a really interesting way of putting it. And I, I really like that quote that you read, too, and make, about making things possible. And I think we, we don't often think of those devices as maybe... Um, assistive technologies, or what is the work that you're doing in that realm of assistive technologies um, to make things possible for people? What does that look like in the context of your research?
1: So my uh, research focuses on the role of assistive technologies in increasing the levels of functioning capacity and participation in people living with uh, limitations. I am interested in developing new low cost and high quality assistive technologies and the effects of assistive technologies on the occupational performance, functional levels and social participation. Also quality of life of people with disabilities and older adults. So in my research, I am interested in identifying uh, the changes in a different health-related outcomes or other outcomes that are important for people with disabilities so that they, um, how the life changed when assistive technology are accessible, affordable, and they can uh, use. Also, what uh, factors are important for uh, people with disabilities and older adults to accept and actually use the technologies because that's another important element.
0: And what, what are some of those barriers that you're seeing with acceptance? Like, are there specific things that are providing a barrier? What does that look like exactly?
1: To accept technology, so the uh, first thing is that uh, we need to think about the end user, because assistive technologies usually become part of the life, the daily life of people with uh uh, disabilities or older adults. So we need to think about uh, their um, identity so how they perceive themselves using the technology right So that's an important thing how, how you perceive that others see you when you are using a technology because it's a lot of stigma still around the use of assistive technology so that's a barrier uh, but there are other barriers. Uh, For example, sometimes the design of the technologies are not uh, good enough for being easy to use uh, by the end users. So this is something that uh, researchers, um, we are trying to improve in the research and development designs. So from early stages of development of new technologies, we need to involve The end users. So, either uh, people with disabilities or caregivers, you know, so we just put their input from the very early stages of development so we can create technologies that will be used uh, by them more easily. Um, So, these are just some of the barriers that we have identified.
0: Yeah, yeah. I can now that you're explaining that I can totally understand um, seeing some of the stigmatization and perhaps how that might hinder uh, adoption uh, of the technology. So, all right. So let's um, let's talk now a bit more about um, the use of artificial intelligence um, and robots specifically. So there's a lot of uh, discussion lately, a lots of media stories and so forth about robots being used as caregivers. What are your thoughts on that uh, type of AI as an assistive technology?
1: I think that uh, robots are being more and more common in our lives day by day. And I think that robots have a great potential to perform some tasks that are usually performed by human caregivers. So I will just uh, talk a, a little bit about that. Uh, when you talk about robots being used as caregivers, you are referring to um, what we call physically assistive robots, socially assistive robots, or socially interactive robots. So these physical assistive robots give support or aid to a user through physical interaction, for example, manipulation of objects or mobility. There is a robot that is called MySpoon. So uh, this is a robot that can be put on the dining table and helps people with disabilities, such as paralysis, feed themselves. Um, another example is a robot called uh, Riva, that was developed in Japan and was designed to assess nurses uh, by lifting patients in and out of their beds and wheelchairs. So this is a physical contact between the robot and the person. Socially assistive robots—they provide social or cognitive support, uh, so they don't provide physical uh, contact. So um, there are uh, different examples. So, uh, for example, some um, social assistive robots uh, can be programmed to help people to look after themselves by reminding them uh, things such as drinking water regularly, eat three meals a day or take their medicine. Um, And the social interactive robots are robots in which social interaction plays an important role uh, in the interaction with humans. One example is the robot Paro that is programmed to cry. uh, This is a baby harp seal designed as a therapeutic tool to use uh, in hospitals and nursing homes. Uh, with uh, older adults uh, with dementia. So this robot is providing more of an emotional support. Thinking about robots performing some caregiving tasks to support humans, uh, for thinking about that, we need to take into account ethical considerations, such as that the human user agrees the use of the robot to provide support. And that the level of autonomy of the robot is according to the human user skills to operate the robot. So in this point, a fully autonomous robot makes all necessary decisions to perform a task. So in assistive robots, so robots in uh, assistive technologies, a mid range of autonomy is desired. So the user will always have the control for changing or stopping a command or action. So that's uh, something that we need to take into account. The level of autonomy of a robot must not diminish the autonomy of a person with disability at the expenses of increasing independence. So this is another important consideration. So in general, in this area, um, the potential benefits of assisted robots must be balanced with ethical concerns of autonomy and privacy of the human user.
0: You've raised some really interesting points and um, and some really interesting examples of, of robots. And I, I am a little bit familiar with um, Paros. It's a super cute little it um, is. white furry robot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and I'm you know there's a number of different pieces here that I wonder about. Um, one, I suppose, is, um, you know, when we think about the cost benefit or, or why, why are we, we moving in this direction? Is it mostly to make, we were talking a bit earlier about democratizing the technology, making things possible, making things accessible. Is it, is it a cost that we're trying to kind of have, a, a I guess, a, a cheaper cost or a cheaper way of doing things rather than having humans, for example, involved in these activities or is it more of a sense of independence and it's a better way of doing things um, in terms of assisting people? Or I guess what's driving this? What's driving the use of these technologies um, in this way?
1: Uh, yes, I think um, many things are driving the development of these technologies. So I think, uh, as you mentioned, um, the cost factor is important. So I think um, now studies are Trying to uh, move uh, from laboratory stages to put these technologies in real care settings, which is very challenging, uh, to assess cost effectiveness. So, are these technologies actually um, making an effect on the uh, outcome variables that are uh, of interest or are relevant for uh, the well being and health of people? And also, are they more um, cheaper for the healthcare system or more expensive? So these questions are not answered yet, because many of these new advanced technologies are still on the stages or being tested uh, at laboratory settings or... They are being tested with uh, people with disability without sorry without disabilities. So uh, when we um, in my laboratory when we do uh, literature reviews, we always find a same the same um, characteristic in the studies is that these new technologies mostly have been tested with healthy young people, so university students. Uh, because it's, uh, it's, it's uh, easier, right, to test, and it, these are the earliest stages. So you need to test the technologies first in controlled environments uh, with people uh, who um, have not a disability or an impairment, and then you uh, proceed to test them in hospitals or real care settings. The situation now is that most of these technologies have been tested only under these controlled conditions. So in the future, in the near future, what we need to do is to move uh, towards testing the technologies in real care settings, and also thinking about how these technologies will be in communication and compatible with the healthcare systems. they need to be uh, linked with the healthcare systems, right? Only in that way we can uh, talk about the adoption of these technologies.
0: yeah, it's it's interesting. um as you're talking, i'm I'm thinking back to a couple of weeks ago when Elon Musk um, announced that he's going to be building a commercial robot I, I suppose we'll see what happens with that in the, in the coming year or so um, but I've also seen a lot of announcements from companies who are um, moving to bring uh, some of these kinds of uh, robots whether that's social or physical uh, or both uh, robots to market and one of the um, one of the primary markets that they've identified is long-term care homes. And I'm wondering about your thoughts on that, because, it, uh, you know, I think about the long term care situation. I think about vulnerable people, potentially people with dementia who may not have the ability to make some of the autonomous choices that we're talking about. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are if, or if you've seen any of these kind of stories um, about uh, kind of the move to bring these technologies to market in, in, in terms of working with vulnerable people.
1: Yes, that's a very uh, important uh, point, because either uh, robots or other kind of technologies, we need to be aware about the the risks, right? So um, particularly, for example, for robots, one topic that has become prominent in the field of design and interactive and assistive robots is the human-robot interaction, in which ethical considerations are studied and discussed, since these robots or technologies are targeting people with physical or cognitive impairment uh, due to aging or diseases and disorders, uh, such as stroke, dementia, or autism spectrum spectrum disorder or cerebral palsy. So it is critical to take into account ethical uh, considerations, particularly for talking about robots, the human-robot interaction are not intrinsically harmful. However, it can result in misinterpretations and false expectations of what is a robot and what a robot can do for the human user. For example, older adults interacting with uh, robot companions may find the interaction with the robot replacing the interaction with humans. So think about an older adult who lives uh, at home. uh, uh, Let's move from a long-term care setting to home. This may lead to isolation if the interaction is only with uh, this uh, robot. Uh, Keeping this in mind, uh, rehabilitation professionals need to be aware that the interaction with robots by people with disabilities or older adults cannot meet their emotional needs. So, uh, such interaction must not substitute the human social interaction. This misinterpretation and false expectations about what is a robot and what is the interaction with a robot can occur not only on the end user, uh, for example, the older adult, but also on family members. So, relatives of an older adult who lives alone may feel that as the older adult has a robot companion, visiting is no longer needed. And that's not what we desire, right? Some scholars, for example, Kochelberg, have pointed out that the assistive robots that use artificial intelligence provide fake care. And because robots are not able to provide good care, which is the care that meets the emotional and social needs of patients, an approach in this regard is that robots alone are not satisfactory to provide the care um, that patients need. So this is uh, just uh, mentioning some of the ethical considerations that always we need to keep in mind when we talk about these technologies. Yeah,
0: you raise so many good points and kind of framing it in this idea of fake care or or, or artificial care, um, and and how do we ensure that we're not kind of replacing our
1: human care with the robots? Yeah the, say, the safest way is to think about that this technology support rather than replace the human care the human contact so um like a, an addition uh that can support that
0: yeah that word assistive becomes very important um in in thinking about that Well, let's uh, talk just a a, a tiny bit about uh, cost-effectiveness and democratizing technology um, and kind of going back to that quote that you shared earlier about how uh, these assistive technologies make things possible. But there's barriers sometimes um, in getting that technology for people who have disabilities. And I know that this is a particular area that you're passionate about. If you could talk a bit more about uh, your interest in ensuring kind of a democratization or the cost-effectiveness of technologies?
1: So I think the main challenge uh, people with disabilities facing this area of assistive technology is the access to the technologies or the products that they need. So it is recognized that 80% of people with disabilities live in low-income countries. Um, Why? Because the prevalence of chronic diseases, injuries, violence, infection, malnutrition, and other poverty-related causes are higher in these settings um, than in developed countries, right? So a person with a severe, as an example, a person with a severe physical impairment, um, let's say uh, degenerative diseases such as Uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy that cause an important and severe motor impairment for for movement. Uh, In a developed country receive on average six assistive technology products to achieve the highest level of independence and autonomy. While people with the same diagnosis uh, living in low-income in, in low-income countries receive only one. So can you imagine so the difference of the life experience in having the same diagnosis but having less opportunities to receive the technologies that they need. Um, so providing assistive technologies is one of the most critical aspect of cost containment and healthcare policy because as um, more severe is uh, the disability or the impairment. So uh, in general, people need more, more technologies or more uh, advanced and uh, expensive technologies. So as a result, many, in many low-income and middle-income countries, only 5 to 15% of people who require assistive devices and technologies have access to them. So this situation leads to inequities and social justice issues. Also, there are some technologies, um, let's say augmentative and alternative communication systems or technologies for visual impairment or cognitive augmentation, that in many countries are not in the list of the assistive technologies that are provided to people with disabilities by the government. These results that people with with what we call hidden impairments, so limitation in vision, speech cognition, uh, they have little or no opportunity to access assistive technologies because it's just in some countries, uh, the assistive technology that is provided is limited to wheelchairs and walkers. So something for um, impairment that is clearly visible, right? But for those impairments that you cannot see, uh, the access is uh, more limited.
0: It is really shocking when you quote those statistics, and even thinking about a a wealthy country like Canada, um, I I remember reading recently about um, the stipend that people receive on as a disability allowance. It's not very much money, and so even being able to kind of afford technologies, even in a country like Canada, but when you take it out to the global context, you really do see the inequities at play in terms of being able to have access to these technologies.
1: Yes. Also, I learned from my student that here in Canada, in some areas that are rural areas, um, not uh, insurance, so they have uh, trouble also accessing the technologies that they need. So this is a problem that is more, um, let's say, severe in low-income countries, but it's something that we need to pay attention in every country because uh, in order to have a good quality of life and equal opportunities for work, to work or to study or to have, uh, you know, uh, an, a life. So, uh, uh, people, we need assistive technologies, and we are wear, we are wearing assistive technologies right now because our glasses <laughs> are, by the definition, are assistive technologies, right? Yeah. So, and we, uh, we I, 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 need that for for working. <laughs> so, you, it's a it's a it's a very simple example about uh, what is the assistive technology and and how important it is for our lives for engaging in our occupations.
0: Yeah, that's a fantastic point. And I, I hadn't really thought about the fact that you and I are both wearing glasses and um, and glasses are pretty normal now. They're not stigmatized at all. <laughs> They're even fashionable in some, in exactly. some cases.
1: <laughs> and that's a, a very good example about how we want to, uh, see assistive technologies in terms of access and in terms of how they look like in the society, right? Yeah. Yeah. For everybody. yeah. Well, we've been talking
0: about some pretty heavy uh, topics, but, but also your work involves play. So we're going to turn now and, and talk a bit about play and, and, and we'll kind of intersect that with robots. I'd love to know a little bit about how you're using uh, robots and play together in the context of your work. What exactly does that look like?
1: I am very interested in um, how uh, technologies can help uh, people with a motor or cognitive impairment to access uh, you know, play activities, to be engaged in play activities. So in this regard, I um, have used robotic systems with uh, children with severe motor impairments who uh, want to play. They, they want to play, but they cannot engage in free play because uh, their motor uh, impairments itself. So using robots um, that have some external switches or uh, means by which uh, children can control them uh, have allowed children to express um, enjoyment, to engage more independently in the activities that they want, And that has um, enormous benefits for children's development, because when a child is able to engage in play, a child is able to explore and to learn from the objects and from the environment. And that has a lot of benefits uh, for the development.
0: And how have you found things like um, age and gender culture and the physical environment influencing uh, children in their play with robots. Have those uh, things been a factor in the context of your research?
1: Yes, Uh, recently I published a paper that is related to a study I conducted in which uh, we aim to identify how children uh, who have extensive experience of play imagine what a robot is, and what features would make a robot good to play with. So that was so fun to conduct this study. <laughs> in this study, uh, I had um, I used a qualitative description design uh, where 19 children from urban and rural settings participated in focus groups to draw and talk about the robots they would like to exist. Uh, so after data analysis, Uh, we found that a common difference between the drawings done by children in the urban settings and those in the rural settings was the environment where the robots were located. Um, While the robots drawn by the children in the urban settings were in an empty space. So that was only the robot isolated from uh, everything. (laughs) In the the children in the um, uh, rural settings 90 percent of them uh, drew their robots in an environment that included water, the sky, birds, clouds, the sun, other children, flowers. Uh, So it was just uh, for them, it was so important to put the robot in this context, in this environment. And in 80 percent of the drawings, the surroundings were nature, So when we were analyzing our data, we found similar findings in a study that was conducted uh, including uh, children from Aboriginal communities in Brazil, uh, children uh, who live in the jungle. So these children also were very aware about the nature and the surroundings. So we know that uh, children in the cities, they are interacting more with Uh, the tablets and the mobile devices, right? And they had less opportunity to go in contact with nature, while uh, children uh, who live in rural areas, they have more contact with nature. So in in this paper, beyond the discussion about the technology, we are learning that, oh, my God, we need to uh, provide children opportunities to you know, be more in contact with their surroundings, with nature, in order to understand more uh, where they are living. (laughs) So this was uh, very interesting uh, in our study.
0: That is super fascinating, like on so many levels, one kind of being this interesting finding that you've discovered, perhaps by accident, about how Uh, children, um, you know, kind of conceive of their own environment and then place the the object, in this case, the robot within that. But also, I think there's an interesting commentary there about, you know, sometimes we think of technology as separate from nature. But what if technology were kind of an extension of or incorporated within nature as the rural children had drawn it? I think that's kind of an interesting Thoughts: how technology and nature maybe are more related than we think of um in in the context of our work (laughs) you've also done some work with (laughs) whack-a-mole and um using wearable sensors and this is work with um with elderly people to assess emotional states can you tell us a little bit more about that particular project
1: in this study uh we propose the use of um electroencephalography. So this is signals from brain activity and electrocolography. These are signals generated by the movements of your eyes and kinematic motion. So accelerations, uh, for example, that. So this data was captured through wearable sensors um, that are available you know, off the shelf so we wanted to use these signals to classify emotional states while individuals uh, while individuals are playing a serious mobile computer game that is the whack <laughs> our team developed a mobile game version of the whack for uh, visual motor and cognitive assessment and training in older adults and thinking about older adults with uh, dementia so in the original guacamole, uh, uh, moles randomly pop up from holes in a box, right? And the player uses a soft mullet to hit the moles back into their holes. So we picked uh, this game because uh, many uh, people who are today older adults they used to play guacamole uh, in the fairs when they were younger. So this is a game that uh, is meaningful for them, right? So in our tablet version of the game, the player uses a finger or a stylus to hit the molds. And we also added a bunny. So uh, just for the addition of an element that uh, allow us to work uh, inhibition that is affected in people with dementia. So uh, the general rule is hit the mold and avoid the bunny. So it's, it's, very, it's a, a game that is very simple to, to play and to understand the rules. And in some other studies, we have had participants with dementia, with uh, advanced dementia, and they are being able to understand these simple rules and to engage in playing this game for about half an hour, which is is very, very good. Uh, we have 21 healthy participants who were uh, just wearing all of these sensors and playing uh, the games and we set the game in three levels too easy um, that you can get bored you know uh, optimal that is uh the level in which you feel challenged but you feel that you are able to to do that and to hit the game and to uh, and too difficult So too difficult may generate frustration. We use a variety of machine learning classifiers to classify the participants' emotional states, on their brain and eye signals, and the kinematic motion data. And the classifiers were trained using an international database of standardized images uh, that elicit uh, emotional states. So our results suggest that brain and eye movements, biosignals, and kinematic motion data in combination with machine learning techniques could be used uh, to classify emotional states while individuals are playing the guacamole game. So these uh, results, despite we uh, conducted this project with healthy young people, uh, now we are thinking, about how we can implement these technologies uh, with older adults, because um, that opens what I want to do in my future research, that is adaptive gaming. So based on what uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms are helping us to detect levels of engagement or emotional states, right? So the games can adjust the level of complexity That will help to keep older adults with dementia, keep playing for longer so they can benefit uh, from uh, practicing their cognitive skills while playing.
0: This is so interesting. And it sounds like a, first of all, a very fun piece of research to have conducted Um, And I love this image of of whacking moles, but avoiding the bunny and and not killing the (laughs) bunny. Um, But I'm also thinking about um, the the use of games in general. Um, When I talk to uh, computer scientists and AI researchers, they're also using the idea of games to train the AI itself. So I think there's some interesting kind of uh, tangents there. Um, But you mentioned machine learning specifically, and you mentioned all of this data that you're collecting uh, brain waves and all of these different sensors, and we haven't really talked uh, as much about how you're using uh, machine learning in the context of your work. But is that where it comes in? Is it it coming in to kind of analyze that level of data, not only for this whack-a-mole research, but
1: in some of the other research that you're doing? I'm using uh, machine learning uh, in different ways. So one example is um, I am analyzing um, large set of behaviors that I have identified that older adults uh, with and without dementia have demonstrated or shown while they uh, were playing mobile games and when, when they were either engaged or disengaged with the game. What I want to uh, do is to teach the computer uh, with these behaviors so the computer then can uh, recognize uh, the level of engagement in older adults while they are playing based on their behaviors. Uh, These behaviors include facial expressions, vocalizations, verbalizations eye movements, head movements, the movements of your hands, right? So all of these uh, behaviors are telling us uh, either if the person is engaged or not. And uh, I think that that machine learning can help us to use that data to produce games that can adapt to um, the level of engagement. So, in this same um, area, I am using other signals, for example, as uh, I explained, uh, signals that are generated by the brain when you are doing an activity that's, uh, or uh, by the eye movements. So, we are just exploring which data can classify different levels of engagement um, accurately. And this is the stage of uh, the research. Also based on, uh, let's say these uh, behaviors of older adults, I am also uh, exploring, and this is my uh, master's student is working that, how we could uh, distinguish uh, older adults with dementia uh, and older adults without dementia based on the behaviors that they have while they are playing mobile games. Very interesting. Before we wrap up, you, you've mentioned
0: um, some of your students, and I, I just wanna get a sense of what does the team that you work with look like? I'm imagining that there are people from other disciplines who might be working with
1: you on some of this, but if you could paint a picture of, of what your team looks like. So my background is in occupational therapy. Uh, so I am in the healthcare area, right? I work a lot with people and researchers from other areas. So in my laboratory, my, I have a master's student who uh, has a, a background in biomedical engineering. Um, and I have a postdoctoral fellow who has a background in uh, medicine and mechanical engineering. And uh, so I always work with researchers and uh, people in other areas in computing science or engineering. I collaborate a lot with computing science here at the University of Alberta. I collaborate a lot with Dr. Eleni Strolia. So we work together uh, in many projects. From my background in health sciences and in occupational therapy, so I, my input is more about how, which behaviors we need to observe or what are the implications for healthcare care of uh, the findings or uh, which uh, kind of psychological or uh, emotional processes are uh, in play when we talk about uh, being playing a mobile game or having uh, your brain signals telling us something about what how you are feeling and from uh, computing science, so uh, my colleagues there, so they, their input is more about the technical aspects of machine learning. So I am an example of a healthcare professional who are very interested in uh, the potential uses of machine learning. So obviously, I don't uh, create the algorithms, but we work collaboratively in uh, making sense of our research designs and also our results.
0: That's wonderful. And, and that's one of the themes we've been exploring on uh, the podcast this season is all of these wonderful interdisciplinary collaborations. Dr. Rios Rincon, you've raised so many incredible points. Um, it's been fantastic talking with you. I just wanna say thank you so much for being here today on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Katrina, for this invitation. And I hope that this podcast is useful for researchers, students, clinicians, and people in the community.
0: AI for Society Dialogues is a co-production between AI for Society and Precision Health, two signature research areas at the University of Alberta. Find out more about AI for Society at AIforsociety.ca and Precision Health on the University of Alberta website. You can find out more about me, Katrina Ingram, at ethicallyalignedai.com. This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 Territory, the traditional homelands of First Nations and Métis peoples. Our technical producer is Corey Stroder, and our theme music is Seeing the Future by Dexter Britton. Special thanks to Callie Vitella for research and production support. Stay connected to AI for Society. Sign up for our newsletter at AIforSociety.ca.